from the one yard line with 38 seconds. Whoa, baby. He's a gambler. And they're good at two point conversions. They probably have a play they really like. Philadelphia, 30 second timeout. Taking a look at what how the Patriots were lining up 17 fourth down conversions. That's the most by any team in almost a decade. You want Philly Philly? Yeah, let's do it. Philly special. Ready? This is like going for the onside kick against Peyton Manning because you don't want him to get the ball too many times. You don't think you can hold him out. And here we go. This could decide the game. Fourth and goal. Okay. And they're going to snap it. And it's Trey Burton who throws caught. Foles. Touchdown. How do you figure? You know, a couple years ago, there was a time where I was thinking about hanging up the cleats. And, you know, I think as people, you know, we deal with struggles. And that was, you know, a moment in my life where, you know, I thought about it and, you know, I prayed about it. And, you know, I'm grateful that I made the decision to come back here and play. Um, you know, I wouldn't be out here um, without God, um, without Jesus in my life. I can tell you that first and foremost. I don't have the strength to come out here and play this game like that. Um, and that's a everyday walk. I mean, we have struggles as people, and uh, you know that's just been my rock. Hey everybody, welcome to Hope. That was a couple years ago in the Super Bowl. It was the Eagles against the Patriots, and at the end of the first half, facing a fourth and goal from the one, the Eagles pulled out this trick play that's come to be known as the Philly special. Normally, the quarterback is the one who throws a touchdown pass, but in this particular play, the quarterback ended up being on the receiving end and catching a touchdown pass. Nick Foles is the quarterback's name, and uh, that game was the end of kind of a long journey for him. You heard him talk about in the post-game interview several years earlier, he was thinking about calling it quits, just being done with football. At that point, he was the backup for my Kansas City Chiefs, and he was thinking, we're just going to call it a career. But instead, he signed with the Eagles to be their backup quarterback. And all year long, he was the backup quarterback. Carson Wentz was the starter, and Carson Wentz is good. He was having a great year, an MVP year. Then he got injured late in the year. Enter the backup quarterback, and the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, this month of November, we're working our way through the New Testament book of uh, Hebrews. Today we get to Hebrews chapter 1, which begins with kind of this definition of faith. It's up on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. The evidence of things we cannot see. When Nick Foles signed a contract to be the backup quarterback for the Eagles, I doubt if he could have envisioned that the day would come when he would outduel Tom Brady and be the winning quarterback in the Super Bowl. He might have hoped it would happen, but it would have required a whole lot of faith for him, for the organization, for the fans to actually see it playing out the way it played out. Faith is evidence of things we cannot see. And it's this confident hope, right? This confident trust. What are we hoping for? And it's one thing to have faith in your ability as a professional athlete. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. The writer of Hebrews is talking about what does it look like to have this confident hope, this confident trust, not in our own abilities, but in God's ability. Whatever it is we're facing. And I don't know what it is you're facing these days. 
I don't know what brings you to worship. Maybe for a lot of you, it's good things that bring you to worship, but maybe for some of you, there are things going on in your life that feels like there's some force that is just against you, and you wonder, is there anyone, any force, any power that can help you out, that can lift you up, that can heal you, that can rescue you, that can cause your doubts to kind of get answered, that can provide faith? And so I hope through the course of our time together today, that's what will happen. That once again, you will be reminded to put your confident hope, your confident trust in the, bil- the ability of our God. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, one of my favorite Bible stories. There's a prophet named Elisha. I'm sure this is exactly what he looked like. And uh, he's the prophet in Israel. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, the Israelites are fighting uh, the Arameans. Aram, the king of Aram, they're kind of living up in what we would call modern-day Syria. And so there's this uh, war that is waging. We pick up the story in verse 8. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel Do not go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on alert there. You kind of understand what's happening? The bad guys are mobilizing their troops so that they can win this battle, win this war against the Israelites. But Elisha the prophet, he's basically functioning as a, a spiritual spy. Whenever the king of Aram is mobilizing his troops in a particular place, whatever his his plan or strategy is, God tells Elisha, and Elisha tells the king of Israel, and the king of Israel makes sure that they avoid going to those places. And this happens multiple times, and the king of Aram is getting really frustrated by this, as you can imagine. He assumes there's a traitor in his ranks. He assumes that one of his officers or one of his generals or one of his advisors, they are giving this information to the king of Israel. But everyone on the king of Aram's side says, no, 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 it's not us. It's Elisha the prophet who's doing this. And so the king of Aram finally says, let's find this guy Elisha and let's put a stop to this so we can win the war. They find out Elisha is holed up in a city called Dothan. And here's what happens in verse 14. One night, one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city, to surround the city of Dothan. It's where Elisha is. The next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, opens the door to this room where they are staying, probably a a holiday inn, and he looks out and completely surrounding them, it's the bad guys, this great Aramean army. And the servant of Elisha enters this place that we theologically refer to sometimes as freak-out mode. He's screaming, he's running back into, he calls out to Elisha, what are we going to do, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? And let's read together how Elisha responds to his servant in verse 16, it's on the screen, read this out loud with me. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Elisha does not enter freak-out mode. He enters faith mode. Our daughter Saffron is eight years old. She's in uh, third grade. And so what happens so far this year is every Monday she comes home and in her backpack is a, a math worksheet 
that has problems for every day that she's supposed to work through uh, throughout the course of the week. And so eight years old, third grade, so far I'm able to help her, but maybe by next semester it'll be beyond my capacity and she'll be on her own. Um, Sometimes there's word problems on this math worksheet. What if one of the problems that Saffron came home with said, read through this story, Elisha and the king of Aram in 2 Kings chapter 6, and turn this into an equation, a math equation. I think I'm smart enough to be able to do that. Elisha plus Elisha's servant is less than a great army, <laughs> right? Are we in agreement on that? I think we're all in agreement on that except for Elisha. Elisha says, no, 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 no. Do the math again. There are more on our side than on their side. What kind of new math is this? What is Elisha seeing that the rest of us are not seeing? Keep on reading in the story. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Wow. Faith is the evidence of things we cannot see. Every time we gather together for worship here at Hope, somebody at some point in the service says, it is no accident you are here. We've been praying for you, and I just want you to know that's the truth. Uh, we gather together every Tuesday morning as a leadership team here in Ankeny, and we pray for you. On Thursday nights, the prayer team gathers in, in the prayer chapel, and the prayer team is praying for you. It is no accident you are here. This is not just a fancy sort of church marketing thing. This is a statement of faith. It's no accident you are here. There are things that have been going on this week that you are completely unaware of, things that you have not seen, but God has been at work orchestrating things, orchestrating situations and moments so that you have ended up right here, right now. It is no accident you are here. I know it's true for you because I know it's true for me. Earlier this week, Tuesday this week, I was in a middle school gymnasium in Carroll, Iowa, watching my seventh grade son uh, play a basketball game. And you know how it is when you go uh, to a game and you're sitting in the bleachers. Usually there's a, enough room, there's enough space. Nobody's actually sitting right next to you. Well, somebody comes and plops themselves down right beside me. And it took me a moment to realize, I know this guy. It's Tom McDonald. Uh, I grew up in New Providence, Iowa. And when I was born, Tom's dad was the pastor at the church where our family worshiped. And uh, later on, when I was growing up, uh, Lloyd and his family, they moved to uh, North Carolina where he pastored a church there. But Tom stayed in New Providence and he ran the hardware store with his wife Marlene for, I don't know, 30 years or something. They retired recently. When, when I was in middle school, Tom and Marlene, they were one of three couples that ran the middle school youth group at our church. And so it was great to see Tom and to catch up with him. His grandsons are on the same team as my son. So he was there to watch them. And, and at one point in the conversation, he said, you know, I'd love to sit down with you sometime, Scott, and find out how is it that you go from small town Quaker boy to being a pastor at Lutheran Church of Hope. And so I was thinking about that this week, reading through Hebrews 11, thinking about faith. How is it that I ended up here? I, I, I went to seminary in Portland, Oregon, because there's a Quaker seminary there. I was born and raised, grew up in a Quaker church, and so I thought God was calling me to be a Quaker pastor. I go to this uh, seminary out in Portland, Oregon, and my seminary advisor, 
a Quaker pastor, professor, Dr. Mary Kate Morse, she said, Scott, I'm helping start a Lutheran church in the suburbs of Portland. Would you like to help? That doesn't happen, but it happened when I was there. And I said, sure, I'd love to help. And so for a couple of years when I was in seminary, I was working at this Lutheran church, and I was in charge of children's ministry and confirmation and high school ministry. And several times while I was working at Community of Christ Church, I said to my wife, Wendy, this is so weird that we're at a Lutheran church. I mean, we're never going to end up at a Lutheran church. It is no accident you are here, right? So graduated from seminary, moved back to Iowa, and for five and a half years, I was a pastor at a Quaker church in Buffalo, Iowa, about 50 people uh, coming to that church. And then uh, in November of 2006, 13 years ago, our family moved here to Hope. And the 12 months from November of 05 to November of 06, those were 12 of the most faith-building months in my life. How does a guy go from being a pastor at a Quaker Church of 50 people to Lutheran Church of Hope in a year, one of the fastest growing, biggest churches in the country? So sign up for Alpha. It starts in January, and I'll tell you the story of how I ended up here. But suffice it to say, it's no accident I'm here. And when we started at Hope Ankeny, Hope Ankeny wasn't a whole lot bigger than Buffalo Friends Church. If we had 100 people come on a weekend, we only had one service on Saturdays, if we had 100 people come, we were ecstatic. And so we decided, a, a congregation that size, let's just focus in on trying to do three things well. Let's try to do worship well and children's ministry well and alpha well. Everything else, if people ask us, hey, do you have this ministry or that ministry? We said, absolutely, we do. It's at the West Des Moines campus. You'll have to go there for that, including Power Life. Power Life, which is our confirmation program for middle school students, when we started Hope Ankeny, it was only happening at the West Des Moines campus. By the time we got to the fall of 2007, we'd grown to about 250 people as a congregation, and so we decided to start Power Life, our, our own confirmation program right here in Ankeny, but we didn't have anywhere to do it. We were worshiping in a middle school gymnasium. My office was in West Des Moines. Where are we going to have Power Life? Well, we had it in the basement of Kevin and Sherry Stick's home. And Mike and Linda Phipps were the two small group uh, leaders that we had because we only had like 12 kids coming. We only needed two. And it was fantastic. At the end of that year, we confirmed five eighth grade students. This is the first class. Matt Andriano, Trevor Agley, this is not an eighth grader, uh, Luke Hermanson and Jordan Bauer in the back row, Katie Stick in the front row kind of keeping us all in line. That was the spring of 2008. If someone would have told me if someone would have told me the spring of 2008, a decade from now, on Wednesday nights, there's going to be 306 7th and 8th graders coming every Wednesday night for Power Life, I would not have believed them. Uh, my faith, my eyes would have been blind to that possibility, to that reality. I would not have believed that God would be able to do that in a decade. But this last Wednesday night, I stood right up here and I got to talk to our Power Life students, some of whom are here right now. The seventh grade boys have been on a retreat all weekend, and here they are for worship at 11 o'clock, and they're ready to go, filled with the Spirit! <laughs> How about that? Their, their leaders, maybe not so much, but the boys are ready to go. We, we absolutely want to praise God for, for what God is doing in our ministry to youth and family and power life, that sort of thing. Here's, here's the vision that we've kind of unveiled this month uh, coming off the 25th birthday party celebration for hope. Let's read this out loud together. Powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, 
revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. That's who we believe God wants us to be. This is where we believe God is taking us as a congregation. We want to be this kind of a church. And what does that mean for youth and family ministry? Well, in addition to the vision statement, we have the 10 for 10 vision that we've been praying through together as a congregation. The sixth goal of the 10 for 10 vision, and it's not like one is more important than the other, it's just 10 of them. But number six says we're going to compete for the hearts of new generations of believers by developing highly creative, fully functional, grace-based, disciple-making ministries that will proclaim the gospel to one million youth and young adults over the next decade. Do you see it? Are your eyes open to this possibility, to this reality? Faith is the evidence of things we do not see. Can God pull this off in the next decade? Well, let's do the math. 2008, we had five eighth graders get confirmed. 2018, a decade later, just here in Ankeny, 77 uh, eighth graders were confirmed. And I asked Saffron to turn that into a math equation for me. She said, this is what it is. Five times 1,540% equals 77. That's what God did in the last decade. What if God does it again? 77 times 1,540%. Some of you are like, we don't even have that many 8th graders in Ankeny. Maybe. Well, what if we say, instead of making it this ridiculous goal, let's make it a realistic goal. In West Des Moines this last spring, uh, we were able to confirm 321 8th graders just at the West Des Moines campus. What if God only does that in the next decade here in Ankeny? We only grow from 77 8th graders to 321. Can you see that? Is God, does God have the ability to pull off something like that? We are seeing incredible growth in our youth and family ministries around here. It's growth that is wide, which means more and more people involved in what God is doing all the time, but it's also growth that is deep. You see these boys, seventh grade boys who go on a retreat. Uh, Pete, our youth and family director, he told me, coolest thing of the weekend. They get the boys together uh, in the evening and they have them just pray for one another. Seventh grade boys praying for one another, saying, here's what we love about you, here's what we hope God does in your life. That's deep growth. On Wednesday nights, you should come and just sit in the back and observe sometime. The sixth graders, the seventh graders, and the eighth graders, they're basically running a worship service. They're the Bible readers. Uh, they give the announcements. Uh, they, they are the worship team, the musicians, the vocalists, leading their peers in worship. Most of the time what happens, I don't know if this was your experience, adults, when, when you went through confirmation, as soon as you were confirmed, you're like, phew, good, that's over with. Now I don't have to think about church for the next decade. <laughs> that's not what is happening here. More and more all the time, after Power Life students get confirmed, they become a part of Ignition, the high school ministry. And then the Ignition students become the small group leaders. We got a lot of Ignition students sitting right here who spent an entire weekend with seventh grade boys pouring into them so that they can know the love of Jesus Christ. Some of them are becoming uh, interns, student ministry interns. Maybe God is calling them into a life of ministry. And you do know, right, you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to be on staff at a church to live a life of ministry. Tom McDonald ran a hardware store and was a, a minister to middle school students. What's God doing in youth and family ministry? If we're powered by the Spirit, what's the next decade going to look like? And so that's why we've decided this month to remind you once again of this campaign that we are in, Building to a Hope Beyond. We want to make more room 
We want to create more space for God to do what we believe God is calling us to do. We've got pictures up all over uh, this room of what it is we're trying to do. We've got information online and in packets that are available uh, around this church explaining what we're trying to do, why we're trying to do it. Uh, we're trying to add about 20,000 square feet of space. And if you think of the Hope Grimes campus, we just built a new church uh, for building for Hope in Grimes. It's roughly 20,000 square feet. That's what we're trying to add on here. More space for Hope Kids and Power Life and Ignition. More space for Vacation Bible School and a Hope Preschool. And uh, space for classes for groups and, and for adults and for choir rehearsal. Uh, the cantata, Christmas cantata is about a month away, and the choir is running out of space in the room where they're rehearsing right now. And so we want you to just be thinking about and praying about how might God be asking you to participate in that. Some of you are already participating. You're already giving. We started this uh, campaign a year ago, a, a three-year campaign. I want to ask you to consider making a one-time gift or a two-year pledge to this campaign to move us closer and closer to the place where we can add on some more room. No guilt, no pressure, just pray and listen and respond faithfully to what it is God is asking you to do. A big part of the vision in the 10 for 10 goals involves stuff that's not even going to be taking place inside the walls of this church. Uh, goal number five, for example, is that we would become world changers. We want, part of what that means is we want to send hundreds of volunteers on short-term mission trips all over the world, all for the sake of the gospel and letting our light shine. You can go online to the Hope website, any of the campuses, and it will list all the mission trips that Hope is sponsoring and that Hope is sending people on uh, next year in the year 2020. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have an information meeting uh, right here in Ankeny for a mission trip to South Africa. Next November is when we'll go there. I'm going to be going, and my uh, high school daughter, Kylie, is going to be going with me. I'd love 20 of you to join me on that trip. One of the reasons we do short-term mission trips, when you get away from home, when you get out of your comfort zone and out of your cultural context, it makes it a whole lot easier for God's Spirit to open our eyes and to help us see uh, with eyes of faith and this greater reality to, to the world than the small reality that we live with most of the time. So we're going to continue as a congregation, praying our way through this vision and the 10 for 10 goals, and I hope that you as an individual will be praying your way through it too and paying attention to where does this vision connect with you and who God has wired you to be. And it's possible, it's possible as you do that, you, you'll be like, it seems like God is leading me this direction. My, my sense is this is the direction God is taking me but I don't quite understand it. It doesn't make, I can't quite see why God would be having me go this way. And that gets us back to Hebrews 11. That gets us back to this idea of faith being the evidence of things we cannot see. Uh, last Sunday after the 11 o'clock service, I hurried home to watch my Chiefs lose a devastating, heartbreaking game to the Tennessee Titans. They were lining up to kick a field goal to send the game into overtime and it got blocked. And that was the end of just a terrible week of football for the teams that I care about the most. And so I tweeted, I hate football. <laughs> Things can change a lot in a week. I mean, I love football today. This is a pretty awesome weekend for the teams that I care about. So it was actually the middle of the week, though, when I kind of got my mojo back for football. Um, the, 
confirmation picture that we put up from 2008, one of the boys in the back row was Jordan Bauer. Uh, his younger brother, Jace, is a student in Ignition uh, this year here at Hope Ankeny. Jace is also the starting quarterback on the Ankeny Hawks football team. They, they just finished a great year. And their dad, Jeff Bauer, has made a career out of football. And Jeff retweeted this week an interview uh, with Nick Foles. Nick Foles, the quarterback in the Philly special uh, that we saw at the beginning of the message, a year after leading Philadelphia to the Super Bowl, Nick Foles signed a contract with the Jacksonville Jaguars, not to be their backup, but to be their franchise quarterback. Multi-million dollar deal, and he was going to help them get over the hump. And in the first game of the season this year, my Chiefs, once again, tackled him just wrong and broke his collarbone. And so he's been out for the entire year, standing on the sidelines just watching. Horrible. But the, the good thing that it came out of it is his backup had a chance to play. Gardner Minshew is his name. He's kept the Jaguars in uh, playoff contention. But even more important than that, we get to see his mustache week after week after week. I mean, <laughs> that is a fantastic mustache, isn't it? Anyway... The reason Nick Foles was being interviewed this week is he's healthy again, and he's going to be starting today for the Jaguars for the first time uh, since, since his injury. And so the reporter asked him, how has this year been for you? I know you're a man of faith. Surely this is not going the way that you would have envisioned it going. Surely this is not how you saw things playing out when you signed a contract uh, to be the quarterback for the Jaguars. And so here's Nick Foles talking about faith. Take a look. I know you're a man of faith, and I know you're trying, but you're also human. I mean, ever any doubts coming up in your mind as you go through that? No, that's where, you know, right when, this, right when I felt this thing break and I was going into the locker room, I just realized, you know, I just realized, God, this wasn't exactly what I was thinking when I came to Jacksonville. Obviously, you come here and you want to create a culture and impact people. But at the end of the day, I was like, God, if this is the journey you want me to go on, I'm going to glorify you in every action, um, good or bad. And you know, I still could have joy in an injury. Um, and that, that's, people hear that and say, that's crazy. But it's like when you believe in Jesus and you, you go out there and you play, and that's, that changes your heart. And you only understand it when, you know, that purpose in your life, just like when I hoisted the Lombardi trophy. The reason I'm smiling is my faith was in Christ in that moment. And I realized I didn't need that trophy to define who I was because it was already in Christ. And that's my message when I play. Same thing happens when I get injured. We tend to make this so much about us as human beings. We tend to make it about us as athletes. It's not about us. It really isn't. And if you make it about yourself, you're probably going to go home at night, lay your head on your pillow, and be very alone and very sad. And then hopefully someday you can find that purpose in your life. Because my purpose isn't football. It's impacting people. And I, my, my ministry happens to be the locker room. And I've been able still to get to know people, get to know these guys through an injury. Though I might not be playing that is difficult from a fleshly perspective, but from the spiritual perspective, from my heart, I've been able to grow as a human being to where I feel like I'm at a better situation here as a person than I was before because of the trial I just went under. And I know that's a sermon in itself, but that's how I go through life. And the good Lord's been there to, you know, it's not always about prosperity. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I believe if you read the word of God and you understand it, there's trials along the way, but they equip your heart to be who you are. Yeah. yeah. Right. What a show off. Anybody can preach a two-minute sermon. Try doing a 30-minute sermon. <laughs> I mean, he just nails it, doesn't he? That's so good. So good. And so much uh, to dig into in, in terms of what he's talking about. Like, God, if this is the direction you're taking me on, then I'm going to glorify you with every action. A, a lot of times I'll hear, I don't know, skeptics, I think, 
sort of getting angry when after a big game they interview an athlete and the athlete gives glory to God. And the skeptics will say, well, how come I never hear an athlete giving glory to God when they lose a big game? And I think the primary reason is because they don't interview the athlete after they lose a big game. They interview the person that won. But here's Nick Foles. Things are not going the way that he wanted them to be going. He wasn't winning. And yet he's able to say, by faith, that's not what matters. By faith, I'm going to give glory to God. It's amazing to me the way he does this. Uh, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. It's the hall of fame of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. And the, the writer of Hebrews goes on throughout this chapter to just list men and women, great men and women of tremendous faith. By faith, Moses, and by faith, Noah, and by faith, Abraham and Sarah, and by faith, Rahab. And And at one point, the writer says, if I were to keep telling all of these stories, we would run out of room. So kind of gets summarized in verses 33 and 34. By faith, these people shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and their weakness was turned into strength. And I think sometimes our temptation can be to read through Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, and say, that's right, these are the people that win the Super Bowl of faith. They have the right kind of faith. They have a strong enough faith that life is just smooth sailing for them. But be careful. That is not what Hebrews 11 is about. It's about faith, but it doesn't mean everything goes perfectly. Here's the rest of what Hebrews 11 says. But others were tortured. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Someone about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. Faith is not about getting through life without problems, getting through life without any pain. Jesus, most faithful guy who ever lived, and his faith takes him to a place of pain and suffering. It takes him to the cross. I actually like the way an author named Walter Wangren talks about faith. We'll put this quote up on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Faith is work. It is a struggle. You must struggle with all your heart. And on the way, God will ambush you. It's no accident you're here. We've been praying for you. And just to be clear, this is what we're praying for you. We're praying that you will work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're we're praying that you will wrestle with God, wrestle with your questions, wrestle with your doubts, and that somehow, some way, multiple times along the way, God is going to ambush you and you're going to find yourself with your eyes of faith open just a little bit more going, whoa, I did not see that coming. Elisha says to his servant, "Eh, don't be afraid. There are more on our side than there are on their side. And he opens his eyes and he sees chariots of fire and and horses. Didn't see that coming. One of Jesus' closest disciples, uh, John, would write, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That we're going through these times in our lives when our faith seems to be crashing or, or when we might say our faith isn't working for us, whatever that means. John wants to remind us the same thing that Elisha is reminding his servant. Whatever force, whatever power that you feel like is against you in your life, faith tells us there's a greater force, a greater power that is on your side. Trust in that force. Put your hope Put your trust, put your confidence in God's ability, no matter what it is that you're going through. 
wanted to invite Kyle and the worship team to come out, and they're going to get ready to lead us in our closing song. And as they're getting ready for that, I want to talk to you about Lorne Whitehead. Uh, so Lorne Whitehead in 1983 uh, wrote an article about the domino chain reaction. If you can think of a, a chain of dominoes and you knock one over and it ends up knocking the whole thing over. That's not what he's talking about with the domino chain reaction. He's a physicist and he, he did the kind of research that proves one domino is able to create enough force or enough power to knock over a domino one and a half times its size. So if you start with a domino that's two inches tall, it could knock over a domino that's three inches tall. And a three-inch tall domino could knock over a domino four and a half inches tall. And a four, you kind of get the idea, right? So if, if you started going through this, by the time you got to the 19th domino, you'd be talking about something as tall as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But that's easy to knock over because it's leaning. The 23rd, the 23rd domino would be as tall as the Eiffel Tower. The 29th domino would be as tall as the Empire State Building you start to see this incremental kind of progression. Again, I don't know a whole lot about math, but mathematicians tell me there are at least two kinds of progressions in math. You got linear progression where you just, you know, keep adding by the same number. So 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, that sort of thing. Go to the next slide and you'll see geometric progression where you're multiplying, compound doubling, and all of a sudden the progression looks a lot bigger. 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, and on and on and on it goes. It, this is like exponential growth. If you're taking steps, if you take 30 linear steps, you'll end up 90 feet from where you started. If you take 30 geometric steps, you can travel the world 26 times. Exponential growth. When we talk about faith, is faith for you a linear progression or is it a geometric progression? I think what the Bible shows us, it's clearly a geometric progression. Five loaves, two fish, becomes enough to feed an entire crowd of thousands. Twelve ordinary, uneducated disciples, plus the Holy Spirit, and God uses that to change the course of human history. What does God want to do through you? What does God want to do through me? What does God want to do in and through Lutheran Church of Hope in the next decade, in the next 25 years? I'm pretty sure God wants to start a geometric progression, a domino chain reaction that changes lives for hundreds of thousands, millions of people. 